Welcome to the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings, where we debate, discuss, and dive into law-related issues important to all of us. I'm Dave Miranda, past president of the New York State Bar Association and partner at the intellectual property law firm of Heslin, Rothenberg, Farley, and Messier. We're here today on Miranda Warnings with Paul Grundle, director of the New York State Writers Institute, a columnist for the Albany Times Union, and author of acclaimed books on Teddy Roosevelt and Albany Mayor Erastus Corning II. Welcome, Paul. Welcome. Well, I'm glad to be here, David. This is really nice. I love the title of your podcast. And do I have the right to remain silent? No, or? you have to talk. Okay. Uh, you, you, do have talk. The right, you do have the right to an attorney, though, if you well, want one. Uh, we're surrounded in this building. <laughs> I think I can find one there. But uh, what a great title. I mean, Miranda Warnings. I love it. Well, we're very happy to have you. Now, in addition to your other credits, I understand that uh, you made an appearance in the New York Times on Saturday. Yes, a very funny story. I, I like to laugh at myself. My two kids really like to laugh at me. So I'm reading the paper. I'm a dinosaur. I still read in print, and it's Saturday, and I flip through this story. I see the headlines, something like, texting is annoying, but it won't kill you while you're walking and stuff. I look at the picture, I go, who is that doofus, you know, on the picture? And I just scan the first paragraph and move on. My wife's looking at it. She never looks in print, which was weird for her. She looked at papers laying around. She always reads it on her iPad, and she saw, I was like, that kind of looks like he is. Like, no way. New York Times, what? And I look, we zoom in, and it's like, it is me. And I look, I'm wearing my, I know exactly when it was. It was on June 4th. I was at the Princeton Club because of the New York State Writers Hall of Fame. I was introducing Doris Kearns Goodwin that night. I had time to go for a run. I'm in my crazy running shorts, my compression socks, a ratty old shirt, and I have my head down in my phone walking across a busy Manhattan street going to the west side to go for a run. And all oh, people just, my friends had so much fun with it. They were just ripping on me. You know, you idiot. You're, and, and I had a lot of fun with it because they were actually saying I had crimes against fashion, too, mainly for the way I was dressed. But yeah, that was my claim to fame, made New York Times. And social media is a great place where people can bust on you and have fun. So right. it, it was fun. And so you made the New York Times, but you had actually, you've been in the New York Times before, yes. uh, several times, actually, for the classic biography that you wrote about Albany's former mayor, Mayor Corning. Um, and the book is called Albany Icon, Albany Enigma. Yes. And that book was, uh, you know, certainly put you on the map. It helped put Albany on the map and and had a, was a, a wonderful uh, description of uh, Albany's uh, Mayor Corning. Um, although he was mayor for uh, over 40 years, the longest serving mayor at the time, you call him in your title an icon and and an enigma. Why was he an enigma? Someone that's been in the that was in the public spotlight for forty years, because people could never really figure out the biggest question with him, with his intelligence. He was top of his class at Groton. He was top of his class at Yale, class of nineteen thirty-two. He was with people like Joseph Alsop, one of the great columnists and and confidants of presidents. He was with Richard Bissell, who was the number two guy in the CIA. Brilliant brilliant prep school and Ivy League education, yet he sat in the exact same gray metal desk just down the street here at City Hall for 42 years, a job he could do with his eyes closed and his hands tied behind his back. But he had everything he needed and wanted. I mean, he loved 
taking a day off and going up to the uh, pine bush and hiking around or going watching ducks and going fishing. So he didn't have to break a sweat running the city. He also didn't have to take much money. He never took more than $25,000 to be mayor because he had his own business, an insurance company. Now, when you're mayor for 42 years, you run a democratic machine, a lot of business comes your way. So he had a very successful insurance business because he was the mayor. People wanted to curry favor or to get in his good graces. They take out insurance policy with his company. So that was kind of his, his, his base in a way. And his family had money. His, his wife's family had money. So the enigma is like, why didn't he go for higher office? He had all the credentials, very charming, handsome, debonair, well-spoken, brilliant, uh, the reason was he also had a, a, a we called her a confidant, Polly Noonan. Um, he had another woman other than his wife who he had a long-term intimate relationship with. Um, not clear exactly the extent of that intimacy, but very intimate, including our current junior U.S. Senator and former presidential candidate, Kirsten Gillibrand, is Polly Noonan's granddaughter. She addresses a lot of these whispers, a lot of this myth in her own book. I interviewed all her family members and also her, but she goes further in the book. Things like the mayor would drive her to school when she was a young girl. The mayor would come to her birthday party and give her birthday gifts, things that I hadn't found out in my reporting. It, it, it hints at this very unusual, very close relationship between Mayor Corning, who stayed married until his death, and Aras, uh, Polly Noonan, who stayed married until her death. They lived about a, a half a mile as the crow flies from each other. And most of the nights, Mayor Corning would have a couple events. He'd actually go eat dinner at the Fort Orange Club by himself at the long table and talk with a lot of people and join people, go to his events. Then instead of going home to his wife, Betty Corning, who he was married to for 62 years, he would go to the Noonan's house. And there he was with Peter Noonan, who was Polly Noonan's husband, and Polly Noonan. They'd have some cocktails. They'd watch the ball game. She would be sewing. In fact, that's this scene in an off-Broadway play, which was very successful, which I saw. I don't know if you saw it. Edie Falco played yeah. Polly Noonan. It was brilliant. And, and he captured Char White, the playwright. He captured the world that I had learned from all the people who were part of it and knew him. A very unusual relationship. And, and there was sort of uh, a weird myth around it. I came here as an outsider, 1981. I'm from the Northwest, uh, Tacoma, Seattle, Washington. I didn't really know much about the history when I got here to UAlbany in the English department. And within a few months, I heard this thing with the mayor. I actually got one of the last interviews with the mayor as a college student, graduate student, before he went to the hospital at Albany Med, then eventually transferred to Boston. He spent a year declining and, and slowly dying while he ran the city, which was also another remarkable thing. Right. So that answer in legal parlance would be objected to as a narrative <laughs> because I asked one question and <laughs> I you know. went on Too for long, like 20 man. minutes. Too and, many words. And then you actually, sorry. You, no, no, you were great because you answered some of the other questions I wanted. I mean, one of the questions I had for you was about the relationship that he had right. with the Newton family. And, 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 you know, recently it was the subject of an off, off-Broadway play by Char White who who stated that part of the impetus for this play was from reading your book. Right. Um, did you talk to the I, I the talked author? to them afterwards, which was interesting. I, I, I got a heads up from somebody, hey, the very first notice in, uh, in New York City that they were casting for this play. 
And, and the play uh, was called The True, the and True. it was on yeah. Off-Broadway and, and last so, year. Of course, my first version was Bill Kennedy, who knows Albany far more than, he's forgotten more than I'll ever know about Albany. And uh, I said, do you hear about this, Bill? He said, no. So then I called Jack McEnany, and he had got a little wind of it. And then I called Howard Nolan, who's a character in the play. He's like, what? So I said, well, this is a story. So I talked to the playwright, and then they kind of got cold feet because as a lawyer, you know, copyright laws, et cetera, um, not just copyright, but uh, libel and other things could come into play. They were concerned, the producers, for a while. They did not change the names. Bill Kennedy and I had a lot of conversation. I actually talked to the playwright, too. I said, you didn't change the names? You know, um, it's a work of creative imagination, like fiction. There's a disclaimer, the legal disclaimer in most novels. Right. He didn't. turned out, as far as I know, nothing happened. But I, I know secondhand and I actually later confirmed that the Noonan family was not happy and uh, I think considered legal. Uh, you know, action. Which would only bring more attention to it, obviously. Yes. But it's it's a it's a brilliant play. It ran an extended run. It was a sellout. I've been in touch with the playwright, and they're trying to get it to Broadway. It's got a possibility. Well, of going you farther. know, they had great stars, uh, Edie Falco and yep. uh, Michael McKeon. Yep. Michael McKeon, a tremendous actor, also played Lenny of Lenny and Squiggy on Laverne and Shirley. Right. So when you were when you were uh, writing your book on Corning, were you envisioning? You know, Lenny uh, <laughs> from Lenny and Squiggy playing, playing no, him? No, but you saw the play then. Did you I didn't see, see the, the play, oh, but I'm familiar he, with he it. Was, he was, he's a brilliant. It was brilliant acting across the board. Um, and uh, he really became uh, all the three main characters. Peter Noonan, who was Paulie's husband, Polly and Erastus were, I thought, spot on. I did not really buy... And I don't think Char White had a good handle on Mrs. Corning. I mean, Betty Corning, I spent time with her. She was very patrician, very simple, too. And the, the uh, actress who per portrayed her was kind of uh, like an aunt, you know, a faded ingenue. She came down this sweeping staircase with a long gown and things. And it, that's not Betty Corning. Um, and now, were, you, in, 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 in writing your book, you interviewed Betty yeah, Corning. Yeah, extensively. Did you get a chance to talk to her about what her view of the relationship with the Noonan so family was. A, I'm sure it was very yeah. uh, this, this is touchy. an interesting thing, you know. I mean, I've been a reporter for 40 years around here, and I have to stand, I have to eat the words if people don't like them. I have to stand behind everything I write, and I'm very careful and sensitive. She was the one who actually gave me the idea for the book because I spent several hours at her house a whole afternoon uh, for a profile in the Times Union, and her husband had already died then. She was on oxygen. She had emphysema like her husband, the mayor, died from. They were both heavy smokers. I said, like, I better get to this soon. While I was reporting, doing my interviews and reporting the book, uh, each week another person would die. I'd read in the obituary. So when she was, when I saw her fading, I said, I better do it. So I had several interviews with her, but she was such a, a, a reserved, private, classy woman. I didn't want to throw that in her face. It wasn't like I was bringing her anything new. She'd lived with it for 60 years or something. So I was really close to like the third or fourth interview I was going to ask her. Um, and I never did. She failed and died. And, and I'm actually glad I didn't. I didn't, you know, the, it's, it's a little bit like uh, Hippocratic Oath journalists, and I believe in it, and authors first do no harm. Right. Why do I want to? I mean, the family already was damaged. I interviewed both the mayor's uh, son and, and daughter, who were estranged from each other. So I would do a lot of interviews and they would tell me, well, what did my brother say? 
What did my sister say? I didn't know that about my father. So it's kind of weird when you're treading on someone else's life story. So I, I did not throw that in, in Betty Corning's face. I did with Polly Noonan, who is a much rough-hewn character, and Edie Falco, when you see the play, there's about 100 F-bombs and about 10 mother F-bombs in there. I hope we can say that <laughs> on a podcast. But anyway, it's salty, it's rough, and that's who Polly was. And All I the letters are up. allowed. All letters are up. allowed. I did Miranda bring it up with, with, with Polly, and she had some colorful responses to that yeah but you know in your book it was still left somewhat inconclusive yeah. as to the very the carefully level as of the as, as you know as a lawyer I'm, I'm careful too i worked at a newspaper i still write for a newspaper we have a legal firm we have concerns about libel we 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 look at a lot of sensitive stories very carefully so i was careful i, I took things out that i that i had that uh, were maybe too much it's interesting that you say that you know his children for example maybe in the course of their interview with you found out things that that right. they didn't know and and that's kind of a, th a thread in your book that that Erastus Corning uh, had all these different kind of lives like 12 different spokes and he was the hub and he kept them all separate exactly. and they all centered uh, into him and that was really one of again one of the reasons that he he was a, a, an enigma right. um, and he kept these different as facets of his life separate yeah. and one of the facets was of course was this the 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 albany democratic machine yes. that he had with uh dan o'connell yeah. and w in your uh research and and talking what was the the uh reason for the not only for the albany, the albany democratic machine the o'connell corning machine but for its longevity what was the reason for the longevity? I mean, there's a lot of factors. I, th I think it, it's important to note that we're coming up on 100 years, 100 years of unbroken democratic control of City Hall in Albany. I don't know another city in America that, that that's happened. I mean, it's incredible. Even Boston, you know, right. occasionally there's a Republican that slips through the cracks. Um, but anyway, so that's interesting. Secondly, I covered my book through all my reporting. I finally found out, now, why were the O'Connells who were, I mean, Dan O'Connell got to fifth grade. You know, the family was, you know, ran the numbers, had a saloon, you know, were kind of South End Street level and street people. Uh, the Cornings were Groton Yale, Groton Yale for several generations. His father was Lieutenant Governor, other, other Al Smith. His uncle was the head of Ludlam Steel, Allegheny Steel. Uh, rather, his, his uncle owned uh, Albany Felt and his father owned steel. So they were big in politics. His uncle was also Parker Corning, a seven-term congressman. Both had major businesses so I found out the common denominator that brought together Cornings and O'Connell was cockfighting. Mm. Illegal even then, in the early part of the 20th century, but something that Blue Bloods and Blue Collar enjoyed because it was betting, it was a blood sport. You know, they wear slashers on their talons and, and they go at each other until someone dies, one or the other dies. And the Cornings enjoyed that sport, and so did the O'Connells. In fact, Dan O'Connell was known nationally as one of the great breeders of fighting chickens. And at his Beaver Dam Roadhouse up in the Helderbergs, I went all through that. Out in the woods, all overgrown and tumbled down, were all the coops of his fighting chickens, and he would have big cockfighting fights up in the Helderbergs in the summer and at other undisclosed locations in Albany during the year. 
So that's how these two guys got together. And they built this organization that covered, you know, street in the South End, Fort Orange Club people, Albany Academy people, sort of the whole social spectrum of Albany, and that gave it its strength. So, and and some might say that uh, Albany politics is a is a blood sport, right? <laughs> I would say that you're exactly right. So, um, one of the things that that struck me as uh, you know, you mentioned you weren't from from here. Uh, the book really helps explain why things are the way they are, you know, from the Empire State Plaza uh, and and that and why Albany politics is the way it is, uh, whereas someone that, you know, didn't grow up with it wouldn't really understand until they read uh, your book. The, one of the things that was very interesting to me as a lawyer was to, the, the section on patronage and specifically on judges and how judges were selected in Albany County. Can you yeah. can you talk a little bit about yeah. that? I mean, there's a quote in the book that is just there's, fabulous. There, there's a great quote. I mean, it's very cynical. It's very, I mean, there's no sugarcoating. Dan O'Connell was a racist. I mean, he clearly was. He was, um, you know, if, if he was running things today, he wouldn't survive because he was anti-women, anti-people of color, anti-Semite, anti any other thing you want to call, you want to call him. Um, but they had a formula. So Corning was not the first of this, I call him a patrician frontman. You know, Ivy League education, looks good. Didn't really run things. Dan ran things. He went up to Dan's house every day. It was documented and got his orders. So before him, you had Thatcher who Thatcher Park is named for, Hackett, who Hackett School is named for, both these, these patrician, you know, Episcopalian, wasp-type figures. And Dan really ran things behind the scenes as the boss. So Corning was kind of pliant, and, and he didn't really have ambitions. And his father died young, had a heart attack, and was going to be the next governor. And Narasis Corning had this great saying, I changed the course of New York history. And I asked him why. I said, well, because my father had the heart attack, had to pull out of he was being groomed and, and was going to be the governor when Al Smith went for president. Couldn't, couldn't uh, you know, campaign, was on his sick bed. And they said, we well, need to find someone quick. And they went and looked around. They found this promising young senator from Hyde Park, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who came up and was, boom, right in as governor. And then, and then his career was set. And Franklin so, Roosevelt actually rented an apartment in this building where we are oh, really? while he was a state senator. I didn't yeah. know because Elk Street, I mean, Theodore Roosevelt, too, was in this neighborhood a lot. And uh, so both Roosevelt's were two of the four governors who lived and worked in Albany who went on to become U.S. president, which is an amazing part of political history. But, you know, Erastus Corning was that enigma in so many ways. You know, it was a job he didn't really aspire to, a job he didn't really have to work hard to, but a job that he held longer than anyone in this country as mayor of, of a major city. Right. So, but tell us a little bit about how they selected the judges oh. in Albany. So I, I would have to read that section, well, but you, essentially, I'll read it to you. you should read it. Essentially, read each it ethnic group got a certain level of judgeship, city judge, county judge. Yeah. Yeah. So they said, uh, um, Italians get one. Never Jews have a Catholic one. mayor. <laughs> yeah. Let the Pro Protestants run the city, and that's all they get. The Irish get the rest. The Jews get city judge. The Italians get county judge. The cops make out on their own beat with whatever graft comes their way. And the firemen he called pinochle players. Uh, so it was really 
I mean, and, part and of that the... came directly from Judge Ned Conway, who was, I think, state Supreme Court. I got him shortly before he died, and his father was Dan O'Connell's personal lawyer through all he got arrested with a baseball pool scandal and other things. So the Conways knew what they were talking about, you know, from, from up yeah. close. And that was his rendering of the way it ran. And it was. You look back for decades, <laughs> the Italians got county right the jews got city court and etc cetera, etc cetera. right it's 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 cynical but it, it was effective for them you know? and and it worked because everybody got something yes. right and yes. that's i mean that's the, the new york times had the classic story the building just up the street the county courthouse they did a, a a beautiful little story they counted the number of janitors in the empire state building what's that 110 stories or whatever and the county courthouse four stories or something our county courthouse had five times as many janitors as the empire state but building. it was a clean courthouse yeah <laughs> clean in parentheses <laughs> no exactly so anyway yeah patronage went far and wide uh, with these guys and it went both ways obviously you mentioned a little bit you know o'connell had uh, beer, right. Hedrick's beer. Yep. You better have it on tap. I've been trying to get somebody, some of these brewers that love going old school and throwback. I haven't had it yet, but people who were around then said it was a terrible beer. But like, it really was in crappy. every bar. It had right? to be. Just like your business had to go to Corning to get your insurance. I mean, And so, and everyone went through, it was what, Albany Associates Insurance? Is that that it? was Albany Associates just now. So here's an interesting segue that also kind of ties into the true and things. When the mayor died... Uh, the insurance company was still very profitable and lucrative business. And in his will, Mayor Corning's will, he gave that book of business not to his own son, Erasmus III, and his daughter, Bettina, and his wife, Betty. He gave that to the Noonan family. Right. The Noonan family. And it was very embarrassing and kind of ugly, but his son went to court trying to fight for his inheritance, essentially. And the Noonan's one. It's now called Aurora Insurance. That also tells you as much as you need to know. It was hard to connect the dots on some of those things, but that speaks volumes. Right. Yes, it does. Now, your book, you know, you mentioned right at the beginning, we talked about the spokes, but you also wrote the book kind of with those spokes in mind, because so each chapter, and you say right at the beginning, each chapter can be read on its own, in its own entirety. So you don't need to read chapter one right. to understand chapter five, because you talk about all these different spokes. And uh, it's, you know, I read the book all the way through. Thank and you. And then it's since a, it's then, a big but, one. But I've, I've I gotten have, since it was published <laughs> in 1997. Yeah. And, but since then, I have gone back and read chapters, and, and you're right. So it's, it, it certainly served its purpose. But I have a suggestion. Yes. To, to, it's great, but see, see if we can make it better. What, what do you think about rewriting it? And oh, man. for the 25th anniversary coming up, I, and just I know not and make it just with a with a with the dramatic arch. I mean, the the, the conclusion is terribly dramatic when he's ill in the in the hospital. I mean, that's it's it's the second by the apple. Jack McEnany did it very effectively with his book uh, Capital City on the Hudson: The History of Albany. Um, he just basically added kind of a update forward and, and new cover and sold a lot more copies i might i am so busy right now I'm, no, you I'm, already wrote it it's just <laughs> know, a little I, editing I, but i'm trying to finish my andy rooney biography and, and i'm way Which behind biography you're working on andy now? rooney oh an albany andy guy okay, a real great. character yeah. but i'm 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 
I should have had it turned in by now. I'm at like 90,000 words, and I'm so busy with this Writers Institute job, yes. which I love, but it takes a lot of time. Let's talk about the Writers Institute. Yeah, excellent. Uh, tell us, what, tell us yeah, so just, first the, of all, what that is. That was started yes, by... William Kennedy, my okay. mentor. So William under Kennedy. The, under uh, Governor Mario Cuomo yes. at the time. So we were founded in 1983. William Kennedy, my mentor, the uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist from Albany, grew up very near here, lived his whole life in Albany, except for a short period in Puerto Rico. He's going to be 92 years old in January, still going. Uh, anyway, he got a MacArthur Genius Grant in 1983, and he said, I'd like to take a little seed money and start something at UAlbany, where he was an adjunct professor. And he was always you know, upset that we didn't get these great writers who'd come through New York and Boston. It's like, why won't they come to Albany? And so we created this Writers Institute. He got the president at the time, uh, Vincent O'Leary, to match little seed money. And it's just grown over time. We're now in our 36th year. We've had over 2,000 writers, a dozen Nobel Prize winners, 200-plus Pulitzer Prize and, and National Book Award winners. And we bring them in for students. Uh, we usually have an afternoon session focused for students. And then in the evening, a free and open public event, either on the Uptown campus or down here at the State Library or uh, different places around the city. We bring our writers to Albany High School. I brought writers to New York State prisons. You know, it's, it's about bringing the power of great writing to a diverse audience and the people we bring in are very diverse. We've, we've had writers from, I don't know, 30 countries, for instance. So it's, it's a – and we have this book festival too, which we do every year, which will be back next fall. And uh, we're starting a film festival actually. So I've been in that job for about two and a half years, came with a lot of ideas and energy, and, and uh, we're growing it. We're doing great things. And you've got some really renowned uh – authors and, and artists coming in this fall. Who, who are some so of the we highlights? Started, we started actually just last Friday night, Dan Rather. I got to interview him on stage. His new book is called What Unites Us. He's very upset with tribalism and people pulling apart. And he's talking about how we can agree on certain you know, ideals and tenets of, of American democracy. So we had about 3,000 people at the SEFQ Arena. It was great. And then we're ending on December 4th, the end of our program, about 35 events in between with Salman Rushdie, uh, the brilliant, brilliant uh, Booker Prize winner of Midnight's Children of Satanic Verses, which got him a death threat, a fatwa from the Ayatollah. This is called Keyshot, and it's uh, his new novel is a sort of reinterpretation and a funny, you know, road story picaresque of uh, Cervantes Quixote, Don Quixote. So it's... Um, it's really brilliant. He's been getting a lot of attention in the New York Times, the New Yorker and things, and we're really happy to have him. And we've got many, many events in between. We have Rakim, the great hip-hop and rapper, uh, Eric B. and Rakim. We have two wonderful poets, Sharon Olds and Ocean Vong. We have the women, woman that writes, uh, Kate Fodor, who writes uh, the marvelous Mrs. Maisel program, which is a big hit on TV. And it goes on and on. We have filmmakers. We have uh, writers in every genre. We actually, this is exciting. This was, again, because of William Kennedy, our founder. We have Francis Ford Coppola coming to town on October 6th for a big premiere of his new director's cut of The Cotton Club, which was a Harlem nightclub in the 30s and gangsters and, and uh, amazing African-American artists. And William Kennedy 
our Albany guy, wrote the screenplay. Mario Puzo was on it first because they had done The Godfather together. Couldn't produce a script that everyone liked, so Kennedy got brought in. They've been friends ever since. And he said, Francis, would you come to Albany? And he's busy. He owns this big winery. He's doing all these things. But they're premiering it at the New York Film Festival in Lincoln Center on October 5th, and he's coming up here on October 6th. We've got the big theater at the Egg, the Hart Theater, and uh, invite everyone to come. That's great. That's great. And, you know, of course, Albany has a great literary history. And uh, certainly the New York State Writers Institute is continuing to uh, perpetuate that. And so it's really great. And that sounds like really wonderful uh, artists that are going to be coming to Albany through the work work that you do. Yeah, we also, you know, we, we get out in the community. We just had a free writing workshop for poets at the Troy Public Library. We'll be doing some uh, this fall in, in Albany. We, we do a lot of fundraising. We get support from a lot of different organizations. We've been grateful to different law firms in this area, to our partners here at the New York State Bar Association. It's what allows us to do this free, you know, most Things like this, think of the 92nd Street Y in New York. Tickets there are expensive, 40 to $90 last time I took. We bring in these world-class people for free because we get generous supporters and sponsors to help us fund it. Right. So it's really important. And it's a great service. Uh, one th- other thing that I just read about you recently is um, I wanted to ask you about is the, the Moby Dick Book Club. <laughs> yes. What is that all about? Now, well, we were talking before. Uh, I, I gave up several times. you got to come clean uh, David, since you have the right to remain silent, but have you ever read Moby Dick? I have read parts of Moby Dick. <laughs> it's uh, about like me. You can call me Ishmael. <laughs> uh, but, it, you know, yeah. Moby Dick, I mean, is there some analogy to the the quest for the whale and the difficulty someone has in reading this book? <laughs> I mean, that seems like so. purposeful to me. But, but it, it is sort of an acquired taste. It's like the first time that I had really strong espresso. And I was like, oh, this is bitter. It's like, no, don't give me that watery stuff. I want the strongest, darkest roast. Mm. You know, I used to be like a light white wine drinker. Now it's like, give me the strongest red wine. After a while, you get acquired taste. If you really hang in there with this, I mean, I've read many, many great books. But I've also given up on the tough ones. And I'm a lit major, both undergrad and graduate. I gave up on Ulysses beat me up. I gave up on War and Peace. I gave up on Moby Dick, but I finished War and Peace last summer. I finished Moby Dick this year with our book club, which met once a month, discussed 100 pages at a time, six times 100, 600-page book. Um, But it's great to do it with a group, but it's also, I just turned 60. You know, you can enjoy reading at all ages. You can be, you can teach an old dog new tricks. You know, you can go back to these great books. I'm impressed by a lot of people I know that say like, oh, I go back to it every year, every 10 years or something like that. That's impressive. I also, you know, quote unquote cheat. I drive a lot and I always have audiobooks in my car and I've had them since they were cassettes or eight track tapes almost. So I've listened to hundreds of books while I drive and I find that's a good way to make up for the hours that I don't always have. Because as a working writer, I write a weekly column. I'm working on these biographies. I'm working on stuff. I'm writing a lot. I'd love to be reading, but I'm, I'm, I'm devouring information 
to write what I have to write. So I don't have as much time for pleasure reading as I'd like. But car time is great time to listen to books. I'm going to give Moby Dick another try. But I got please, to tell you, car time, car time is reserved for Miranda warnings. We just listen <laughs> over and over. It's of like course. it's like Moby Dick in that you're, you're going to want to go back and Next listen. Stop, man, listen, you're going to be Spotify. Wait till listen, you, listen there's a whole to Miranda YouTube <laughs> channel. Next. So we have a... We have a feature on Miranda Warnings. Uh, usually, we're not always talking about books, right. but we have a feature called uh, Music, Book, or Movie, where you can talk about any sort of uh, artistic performance that uh, is meaningful to you. And we've talked about a lot of that here today. Um, but is there something else that uh, has some meaning to you? Ah, boy. Music, uh, book, or movie. I'm going to say music because... Neil Young was a hero to me growing up, that Harvest album, CSNNY. I just read a, a brilliant, long-form uh, profile in the New York Times on him. Did you see? Yes. So I listened, I listened to his biography, and he, he's also a mad genius, kind of as difficult as, as Melville. But this quest for the perfect sound, he's invested millions of dollars. He's got this old Cadillac with this this crazy sound because he's so angry how CDs and MP3s and everything just compress and, and take away the whole texture. So that was cool. But then, then the journalist got into, he's got an autistic son, and Neil Young has a son on the spectrum with severe special needs and things. And it was just beautiful. But his music has carried me through, you know, beautiful times, great road trips, tough times since, you know, the 70s or late 60s when I started listening to him. And, and uh, um, just to see that he is still putting out great music, that he's fierce and iconoclastic, but also that I got my kids to listen to him. You know, my daughter... I, th I threw away all my vinyl, which which kills me. But at the time, I was like, oh, one my I got so many books. I got so I got rid of my vinyl. But now it's coming back. She lives in New York. She's got a turntable. They listen to records. Right. Maybe they'll read books in print one day. But anyway, she's into Neil Young. I mean, it, it, Neil Young is is just brilliant. I, I assume you're a fan too. That yeah. Well, I you know I I am a fan, and I read the article, which I thought was fascinating. Uh, where he feels like when his music, when they take his music and digitize it, that you're losing some of it. Right. And he says, you know, this is the song I wrote, but the song that's digitized is not mine. Right. And he is very much in the realm of everything should be played like as it is. He doesn't like any sort of changes to it, even the mistakes, especially the mistakes, right. uh, that he felt that's what makes, you know, music so beautiful and, right. and, and wonderful. And so that when you digitize it and maybe you, you, something that was too loud is now neutralized and something that was too low is now louder. Right. He says changes the whole concept of it. And he also, so that part I can, I buy into and I thought was great, but he also said he thought that it was changing how our brains work, I agree with which that. was, uh, I think all, you know, I don't, I don't know how you can Establish that, but I think social media does that. I mean, I work with students. I, I teach a gr group of freshmen writing at U Albany, and I've worked with students for you know twenty, thirty years. And it's harder to get them to to read a book, a single book. I mean, I was in college in the seventies, and uh, 
each class you'd have five or six full books on a syllabus. Now one book, they, they scream and like you're torturing them. So it, it's everything is short. It's very visual. It's very audio. It's it's you know there's a discipline to sitting down and reading yeah. for hour and hour hour and hour of ink on on trees. You know where yeah. nothing flashes, spins. Memes, gifs, whatever you know. Well, you and think it's, differently it's when you're reading a right. when you're reading a book, right? Because it, you become immersed in it. It takes your full attention. I, I tell you, you got to get off your apps and you got to stop toggling back between your your texts and Instagram and everything, or or you'll you'll lose it. But I do believe that that deep concentration is eroding. I agree, and I agree, I recommend your your the Corning book that you wrote uh, for anybody that wants to understand not only Albany but just politics uh, and how people what makes people tick. Uh, so, Paul Grundle, it's been great to have you here on Miranda Warnings. Thank you very much. Thank you, and I'm glad you read me my Miranda rights, and uh, I know where to find a good attorney. You have the right to keep writing. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for listening to Miranda Warnings. I encourage you to rate, review, and subscribe to Miranda Warnings, a NISBA podcast, available on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.